listening to Kilometer Zero by the Cycling Podcast. Ten years ago, to celebrate the 100th edition of the Tour de France, the race visited Corsica for the first time in its long history. After a spectacular, incident-packed Grand Depart weekend, it was back to the mainland for a greatest hits of the Tour de France, which featured the giant of Provence, Mont Ventoux, and, for the first time, a double ascent of Alpe d'Huez during the same stage. The race set off without defending champion Bradley Wiggins, controversially, though perhaps not surprisingly, left out of Team Sky's lineup several weeks before the Tour started. Instead, the 2012 runner-up Chris Froome, who'd enjoyed a near-perfect run of stage race results in the first half of the season, led Team Sky. For this episode, I spoke to the eventual champion Froome, who clinched the first of his four Tour titles, and his friend and teammate Richie Port about that 2013 Tour. While we talked, Froome was warming up on his indoor trainer, ahead of a big day out on the road. Port, on the other hand, was happily back home in Tasmania, enjoying retirement with his family. It, it is unbelievable, you know, where those last 10 years have, have gone and and how fast they've gone. And then if you look at the, the sport of cycling, you know, I think Sky was probably, you know, I wouldn't say the first team to to really go in and, um, you know, and, and, and dot I's and cross T's. I mean, that team just missed nothing. So let's go back to 2013 then. I mean, this was your third Tour de France. You'd already been part of a Tour-winning team, so you were kind of becoming quite an experienced rider by that stage. I think when I think back, that Tour really began the moment when it was announced that Bradley Wiggins wasn't going to ride because he had a knee problem and I think he'd been a bit ill as well. He'd not had a particularly successful Giro, which he'd gone in to try and win. Uh, what do you remember about that that build-up and kind of the, the changing of the guard? Wiggins wasn't going to be the leader. Chris Froome was. I mean, did you know about this? Did you get sort of a, a sense that things were changing behind the scenes before it was officially announced? Uh, to be honest, I probably knew that before um you know the year before you know during the the tour de france i was lucky enough to to ride with bradley when he he won the tour in, in 2012 and i remember on the uh on the rest day um i was riding beside him the second rest day and you know even at that point it was pretty obvious that barring a disaster bradley was going to win because you know we were dominant and, um, you know and, and i guess Freeman was his biggest rival but he said he said that to me on the road. He said, "I don't want to be back at the tour next year, you know, with the stress." And I mean, it, it wasn't really a massive shock when when he didn't come back to defend. But at the same time, I mean, Froome more than showed that he, you know, he he was going to be that, you know, the the next big GC rider of his his generation. If you looked at, at that team, you know, I don't think I've ever been on a team where we all felt. You know, we, we were a, a good bunch of mates, you know. We laughed, you know, the whole way through the race. It, it was such a, a great click. I mean, it is easy to go to a race like that when everybody's getting along well. We'd, we'd all race together so much. We knew each other. And, and then we had guys like um, Nico Portal and Sivas Kanavan, you know, as, as DSs. We, you know, it was everybody got along. You know, it was such a great atmosphere. I know Mikhail 
got in touch with me a few days ago asking if I could do this interview. It really sort of took me kind of off guard in a way because it's not something I've really thought about at all. Maybe once I do get to the end of my career, maybe it will be something I've, I kind of reflect on a little bit more. Yeah, I think that's understandable, isn't it? But I mean, if you, when Mikel did ask you that, what, what are the standout things? You know, if I say to you the 2013 Tour de France, what immediately comes to mind? First of all, I think of the start over in Corsica and the two or three real sort of key stages that, that I targeted earlier on in the race, or the first mountain stages being Axe Trois Domaine. Was it Pierre Le Saint Martin as well? Those were the two two big mountain stages that stand out, as well as the Ventoux and then Paris. Yeah, I sort of seem to have missed a lot of what happens in the middle there. I was really looking forward to it. I didn't feel it as as pressure. It was something I'd I'd been asking for, something I'd really hoped for um, going into that tour. So I, I took it with with arms wide open. And I mean, were you involved in the selection of the rest of the team? Did you talk to Dave Browford and the staff about who you wanted around you? To an extent, there were obvious candidates, guys who were in in fantastic shape, guys like Richie, for example, Garen Thomas, guys I'd been training with who I could see they were ready for the tour and it made sense to to have them there and who wanted to be there. But it, it definitely gets harder when you get down to sort of position eight, position nine, I think at that time when we still had nine riders, potentially two people can do the same job and you have to select one of them. That's, that's where it gets a little bit more tricky, but the real sort of lieutenants, if, if you want to call them that, the guys who were supporting me into the last kilometers of the final climbs, they were a lot easier, I guess, uh, selection um, in, in, in terms of that selection criteria. Y ahora ya con todo metido. Bueno, que corona y salta, ¿eh? Se va a coronar y saltar ahí. Oh. Victoria para Froome. Oh. Más líder, por lo tanto. Bueno, más líder no. Alberto, segundo. We did the Criterion International. Where Froome and I were first and second. So we knew that those roads there in Corsica were... Um, you know, I, it's, that's one of the things going to the tour is everybody says, you know, how stressful and the carnage that's going to be the, the first few weeks. But once we've done that race there in Criterium International, you, you really did realise that Corsica is absolutely stunningly beautiful. But, you know, the, the potential for mass pileups and, and stuff is, you know, on, on those skinny little mountain roads is pretty incredible. It's quite funny to look at it now and those big pileups happened on, on the big highways, you know, where, especially where that the Orica bus got stuck under the the, the banner, just the, the things like that. So um, I think for me, like going and doing that race and, and then doing the recon there in Corsica probably stressed me out. That was the feeling going into that race was to get through those first few days and then get to Nice. That was going to be a massive part of it. And then funnily enough, me crashed in the neutral the first neutral zone of, of the tour and it was like oh no you know this is not going to be straightforward and as the ribbon was cut to mark the tour's 100th edition it was all systems go well for most of the riders except for chris Froome, not the perfect start for the pre-tour favorite 
A wheel problem followed by another mechanical issue. But fortunately for Team Sky's main man, the incidents occurred in the neutral zone. A bit of pre-race nerve for me that day, trying to move up in the neutral zone to get to the front. Some barriers sort of came in, came in at me much faster than I, I expected they, they would. So, yeah, I ended up on the floor before the race even begun, which felt, just felt a bit silly more than anything else, really. You expect crashes. The only crash that happened early doors was uh, Chris Froome in the neutralized zone. Now, it was a very minor scrape. Mm. You know, he seemed to hit a, he we heard, heard a curb, but I think it was an advertising board or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he came off now. It was minor, he was back up, he was back on. But are these the kind of things that happen to a rider that wins the tour? I mean, it, it, you know, let's not overplay it, but... You're absolutely right, these things don't tend to There aren't many splits in the neutralized win. zone usually, no, so no. I don't think he was on the right end of a split. <laughs> the peloton continues on, and I can tell you that the Odica Green Edge bus is strapped beneath the finish banner on the finishing line. And in about 18 minutes' time, the peloton will be coming in. Well, it's complicated and it's a battle, and uh, it's a battle that's going to. Yeah, my memory's a little bit hazy of it, but I think that was like a massive. There was a massive pile-up, you know, like Cav, and then you know all the the big sprinters had big crashes. I think that was like where Cav was on disc brakes was the first that you know sort of disc brakes were starting to come into the peloton, and he told us that he missed the crash because his brakes were so good, and then everybody from behind sort of piled into into the back of him. So. That was, yeah, around about that moment of um, mayhem was when um, Nico came across the radio saying something's happened at the finish and the race will be shorter. But it was just manic. I think there's maybe a bit of a crosswind section as, as well. And it was just a, just an absolutely um, bonkers stage. You know, I guess that, that's the one thing that the tour is fantastic. It's, uh, at, at throwing up, it's just moments like that which are just sort of etched in your brain. And that's actually where G had a big crash, I think, in, in one of those. I think there might have been three crashes in in a couple of Ks, you know, big proper ones, you know, like on the left side and then on the right side and then in the middle of the road. And that's actually where G had his big crash and, and he did his fractured his pelvis, you know. So, you know, I guess that's one very, very strong man that we were already down as, as the wash up there going into uh, into a three week race, which wasn't ideal. For us, the big worry was going to be if he could make it through the team time trial in Nice on stage four. He really pulled one out of the bag there because we'd we'd given him the, the job of sitting on, trying to get through that team time trial the best he could. I think the start was the most worrying for him because we had to accelerate up to speed quite quickly. And he managed to get on the back, no problems. And we're giving him the job of just sitting on to try and just survive that time trial. I'll tell you one thing, Phil, you can take your hat off to uh, Geraint Thomas. He struggled over the first half of this race. He realised how, how important the second half of the course is going to be. He knows they're a few seconds down on the time of Omega Pharma Quickstop. But there he is, number nine. He's got himself off the back. He's got his painful body warmed up a fraction now. And he's coming to the front to help the team to keep their pace nice and high. And I can remember about halfway through, all of a sudden he just started doing these turns with everyone else and doing his, doing these pulls. I think that just lifted lifted the spirits of the whole team. I mean, we didn't we didn't win that time trial, but I think we came pretty close. And Jaren was definitely a big part of that. 
Spider-Man being the first big mountaintop finish, I think that's that's where I've wanted to open up the open up the tank. Really, really, just see where I was against other GC guys. I felt confident beating a lot of them in the races before the Tour de France, and I just wanted to, I guess, confirm that that was still the case. Which I did, I did get those answers, so that was that was fantastic. That was a really good day for us. Yeah, that was a a pretty cool stage. You know, for me first, I was second, and also with the running to the to the tour, it was almost like a, a deja vu. Like I won Paris Nice, was second in um, Pay Basque, and second to Froome in um, in the Dauphiné and Criterium International. So it was like, you know, this is awesome. We're, you know, we're we're both going to be up there in Paris. It was kind of one of those moments where you know, count your your chickens before they'd hatched, and didn't we pay for it the next day? Actually, there's a funny story too that so that that stage where Froome was first, I was second out. They put my Pinarello bike on, on the roof of the Team Sky car and some drunk fan walking down, you know, um, obviously there's there's massive traffic jams going back down to, to the bottom of, of the uh, the mountain. So he's taken my bike, uh, stolen my bike off the top of the Sky car, descended down and parked up at this pub at the bottom. And it was just lucky that um, Nico Portal's mate at the, the pub at the bottom and saw the Pinarella F8, which it was at the time, and saw the, the sticker with my name on. I was like, that's not meant to be. That's the genuine thing. So he called Nico, and that's how we got my bike back. Because the, the team didn't tell me about that. I think I read it somewhere that that had happened. And then, they, you know, that's when they were like, yeah, we weren't going to tell you that that's what happened. We got the bike back. And I, I think I can just remember getting to my, my hotel room that evening and just thinking, this is, this is the Tour de France. This is the, the, the biggest race on the cycle, cycling calendar. And it just felt too easy. It felt, too, it, it felt as if it was too... Um, Richie and I, first and second, everything was just going to, to plan. Um, and it, it just... It felt surreal that, that we were in that position. I just remember that night after that stage, you know, I was just on a massive high, you know, with the crowds and, and things like that. It's just, it was one of those nights where I was just, I could not get to sleep and you know, I had terrible night's sleep and, you know, everything was just, you know, this is, this is just too good to be true. And then the next day, didn't the peloton um, let us have it? You know, it wasn't made easier. At the start, um, Pete had a big crash, um, and and so we'd lost Pete, who the day before was absolutely brilliant. You know, Pete was one of the biggest talents, and uh, so we lost him. G obviously um, was injured and just trying to get through, you know, as best he could. And and then the the next thing it was just yeah, Peloton absolutely gave us a kicking and and um, you know taught us a lesson. We had some bad luck that morning. They had, I think, Pete. Pete went off into a into a crash off the side of the road somewhere. Kirienko was was ended up doing a, a lot more work than we'd um, foreseen before the stage on on the flats before coming into the climbs. And we hit the first 
first set of real times and Movistar just, just lit, lit the race up and left me basically isolated with no teammates. And so it was that that felt as if it pulled me pulled me down very quickly from, from that point where I was late yesterday thinking everything was too easy and we had the race wrapped up. Um, that definitely wasn't the case. So um, that was a that was a bit of a strange stage. I can just remember feeling very, very alone in that front peloton. Just with Nicolas Portal in my in my earpiece, who did an amazing job at basically getting me through that and helping me to compartmentalize the job that I had to do that day, which didn't become me against the whole of Movistar, just I, I, I literally just focused on, I think it was two, three individuals, Quintana, Valverde, may have been Moremo, someone like that. And just thinking, okay, those, those are the three guys I'm going to focus on today. Everyone else can go. I'm just going to focus on those three and that should get me to the finish line. We were chasing absolutely everything and anything that moved. You know, with that team, it, it hadn't been an issue up until that point. And then the next thing, you know, it was just through me and I and not that many guys left in the peloton. And I remember riding on the front and, you know, I was feeling it. And then I remember Valverde started to attack. And um, when you see Alejandro Valverde attack, you know, he's, he's an incredibly intelligent bike rider. You know, the proverbials hit the fan <laughs> kind of a moment because, you, you know, he's he's good. And then obviously other guys would be jumping across to it. And we were just so lucky that Froome was, you know, he was so much stronger than everybody else. And he had Nico Portal in his ear, you know, taking him through it, you know, because I can't remember how many movie star guys that there were, but. I remember Froome telling me that the only moment that he was really worried was I think with Ruben Plaza attacked with Valverde on the wheel and Froome just got across to it and, and shut it down. And if they had it kept attacking there, they probably would have had him on the ropes. But, you know, that was, that he, he bluffed it and, um, you know, it turned out like it did. Um, you know, he really saved the race on his own there. If my memory serves me correct, I think I'd, um, after the second rest day, I'd started, started coughing, started, um, it wouldn't have been more than a small cold, but being, being asthmatic, that really just closed everything up in my chest. I can remember that was quite a, quite a concern coming into the last few days and feeling that sort of closed feeling in my sort of upper respiratory, um, that was definitely cause for concern for me. Was Alp Duez the, the most difficult day? I mean, there was also the problem with the cars, you couldn't get a feed and uh, Richie took the, the bottles and gels and then you, you both got a penalty, didn't you? I mean, uh, it, it was quite a dramatic day that in the end, even though the result perhaps doesn't look like it. Yeah, it was. I mean, two times up Alp Duez, um, with a, a tricky descent in the middle. Um, 
we've had a bit of a, a drama in our in our team car behind the cooler box because it was such a long stage. The cooler box had been filled with with extra ice, which um, spilled out of the cooler box around the corners on that on that descent and fallen on the electrics of of our support car. And um, so, which meant that we were without a support car coming into the last time of the Wes. So we hadn't, we basically missed a, quite a crucial feed coming into the last climb. And I can remember that just, that it just felt as if I, I, I could feel I was running low on, uh, on sugars coming into that last, last five, six Ks. And, um, Eventually, when they managed to change cars and, and get another car back to us, I can remember just thinking, I'll take that gel, whatever it, whatever it costs us in terms of penalties, it's going to be worth it. Yeah, pretty, pretty stressful situation and uh, didn't, didn't bode well as well for, for the days to come. From Cantrado, 1.06. Ahí llega también Alejandro Valverde, 1.10. Muy bien también el final de la etapa de Alejandro Valverde y vamos a estar pendientes también de la llegada ahí de este grupo con contador Fuxland y Miquel Nieve que con ese estilo 10 I understand why they didn't repeat it because it was boring, you know. And, and I think that's that's always the way, isn't it? It's like if you're going to make something so hard, then it, it's, you know, we, we rode up the, the first time almost at walking pace. I just remember that all the talk was about the descent. And we had like a bit of a, you know, like um, Perito and, um, and and those guys, Valverde, you know, we had a, a bit of a, a truce, so to speak, that we wouldn't attack. And I remember Kreuziger and Contador, who were Saxo at the time, they attacked. And it was, it was quite a funny one because then at the bottom in the valley, you had all the GC teams chopping off together to, to bring them back. But then that's when all hell broke, broke loose. That was when we had the, the Jaguars, if you remember. Of course, yeah. And, yeah, we had um, James Murdoch in the car that day as well. I think it was the, the ice box in the back with all the, the drink bottles. All the ice melted was stinking hot, overflowed and shorted the cars out, you know, with the electrics in, in the back. So that's why the car wasn't there. Nico Portal um, told me, you know, Nico was a, a gentle kind of a fella, but, he, you know, that Murdoch was in the car just going, like, this is absolutely bonkers. But, you know, the, the crowd were, were going for the car, you know, like kicking and, and hitting it and throwing all sorts of thing, things on it. And, and Nico was just like, well, I can't wait for them to get out of the way. And he said, you know, you could hear their feet going under the car <laughs> on the yeah. way up. And, <laughs> yeah, it, it was just absolutely bonkers, you know, which is, uh, I think that's quite a funny one now is that you look back and Dutch corner, we, we copped it and then there was the Irish corner, you know, and then people were like, well, how do you know if the people were abusing you were Irish? And it's like, you can't mistake that accent, can't you? You know, there's only, you know, the Irish have a certain way of pronouncing the, the F-bomb or the C-bomb and that's, that's what we were getting heckled with on, on the way up. Stage 20, day before the Champs-Élysées, that was the last real opportunity for me to, 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 to lose the tour, I guess. If I had a terrible day, 
and Quintana was up the road, everything was still to play for. When he did attack there, I was, I was pretty, pretty happy to be able to follow, follow his initial moves. And I think it was only towards the very top that he, he got away. But it was clear to me at that point that it wouldn't be enough to, to threaten my lead. I just remember that um, Froome was as sick as a dog. You know, he was lucky that he took all that time in, in the start of the tour because, you know, Froome... That was probably his, his limiting factor at that point was he'd always get like this cough and you'd, you know, and then the next thing was down in his chest and that was, you know, kind of his Achilles heel is that he always seemed to get like that, um, you know, that illness through through races. You know, he, that's one thing I'll, I'll never forget for Froome is he always had that cough that, you know, like his toes were rattling. It was that bad. And, and I think that, um, yeah, Nairo, Obviously, that was kind of where Nairo really announced himself was was that stage, and and that was pretty cool to watch. To be honest, that um, you know, Froome was going to win the tour. It was it was going to be hard to 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 um, unseat him. But then Nairo went on and 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 won that stage, and and then it was just so huge with Colombians. I remember Matt Rendell, who's probably you know one of one of my favourite journalists you know, sent me a photo of Nairo's dad and you could see just how much it, it meant to, to him and, and to his country. I mean, you know, Nairo really probably did bring those, you know, that um, interest into, into cycling in, in a lot of ways. That was probably the, the sweetest time to ride into, into Paris was that year. With, you know, we went through so much. We were down to seven men quite early on in the race and, um, we were we were such a tight little unit that um, then when we got to to Paris and Froome let me ride onto the Champs-Élysées first and, and things like that, which was just one of the most brilliant moments of my career. Um, and then to to finally, you know, to to see a good mate win the the biggest race was just awesome. It was just a surreal experience. I mean, rolling onto the Champs-Élysées. With your teammates um, right at the front of the bunch like that, it's it's a it's 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 a really special feeling, a feeling I'll never forget. Sort of achieving a a, a dream that had been there for years, try and win that race. It literally brought tears to my eyes, like rolling on such Champs Elysees for the first lap, um, and then crossing it arm in arm with my teammates. Just, uh, yeah, incredible, incredible day. It's moments like that, that that cause you to sort of reflect on the whole journey. And that journey for me was growing up in Kenya, um, seeing the Tour de France the TV uh, on the TV for the first time as a teenager and just thinking, wow, I'd love to be there one day. And to actually be there in the yellow jersey winning the race at the end of it, it was just... It was incredible. It was such a such a sort of um, landmark moment for me, I guess, in, in in my career and in my life. There is the winner of the Tour de France. Sky for the second year have taken the winner to the line. Chris Froome, second last year, is the winner of the Tour de France this time. Yeah, that takes me back actually to the Champs Elysees just just finally because the whole team did sit up and finish sort of thirty seconds 
behind the, the, the race. And I, I can't remember, I'd have to check this, but that wasn't something that teams did back then. It was, it was a first, I think. No, no. Um, it was something that it, I talked about it with my team in the morning and just figured this would be such a nice way to do it, to, to cross the line altogether. I felt it was very much a, a team effort and that I wouldn't have been there had the team not carried me the way they did in the difficult moments that I had. And I wanted, wanted them celebrating that together. It just felt right. It just felt right to be crossing the line arm in arm with the guys who got me there. But I do remember not long after, um, you know, when I, 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 next time I saw through me, you know, a week after the race, I said, you know, how is it? How's life? And his, his comment kind of never left me. He said, careful what you wish for. You know, he's like, obviously that was his wish and his dream, but just the amount of scrutiny and, and things that it opened him up to was, um, you know, I mean, obviously pretty hard. But, uh, you know, he then went on to win quite a few more tours after that, so he obviously dealt with it pretty well. This has been an episode of Kilometre Zero by The Cycling Podcast by me, Lionel Burney. It was produced by Tom Wally. It's part of a mini-series to mark the 10th anniversary of The Cycling Podcast's first episode, which was released on June the 23rd, 2013. And it's part of our Kilometre Zero series for the 2023 Tour de France, the rest of which will be available exclusively to friends of the podcast subscribers. An annual subscription costs about as much as a cup of cappuccino a month, and your support plays a huge part in keeping our regular show on the road. You can sign up at thecyclingpodcast.com and add your subscriber feed to your favourite podcast app in a few easy clicks. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Burney.